I'm Jordan Steingard, Program Manager at Columbia University's Temple Hoyne Buell Center for the Study of American Architecture. This podcast mini-series reflects on a Buell Center publication called The A&E System, Public Works and Private Interest in Architectural and Engineering Services, 2000 to 2020. In these podcasts, you'll hear from students from across GSAP who worked on the A&E System project in its various stages, from early case study research to learning to use public databases to the development and writing of the publication. In their conversations, they discuss their unique disciplinary perspectives, the role of the built environment in relation to climate change and government, and the ways that this research has shaped how they're moving forward as professionals. I'm Anais M. Gonzalez. I'm a third year MRC student at Columbia University GSAP. I did my undergrad in environmental design in Puerto Rico. My name is Henderson Beck, and I'm also a third year Master's of Architecture, dual Master's of Science and Real Estate Development candidate at Columbia GSAP. I worked on this project for about a year, starting in September 2019, when I was in my first year of my MRC program. And I was interested at first because it had to do with the situation in Puerto Rico initially. I first started working on this project in fall of 2019 as well, and really was interested in the work that Buell was doing in regards to A&E because it's coinciding with this long-term goal of a Green New Deal and how architects and practitioners are involved in this process of greening United States infrastructure. I mainly focused on analyzing budgets and more than budgets, contracts between the government and the companies that we worked on. That first semester, I was also taking a class that had to do with the Green New Deal um, curriculum that was being worked on simultaneously, which was Carbon Footprint with Professor David Benjamin. I had that in the back of my mind while I was also working in this project. And also my interest linked back to the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and how that money was actually spent. I think that really was the thing driving my interest in understanding the money and where it came from and what was actually being done. I think just knowing how to follow that flow of money, you can just learn what's really happening in your city, right? And that was very important for me because for the reconstruction in Puerto Rico, it was very hard to see any kind of change or reconstruction right away. It took a few years and it's still happening. That definitely sparked conversations between my um, classmates in studio, just talking about these big companies that we know are might give us jobs in the future. And some of us might be <laughs> employed already there, but just understanding their vision right behind the website images and prompts that are matching current trends. NIS and I started the program together at the same time and also started working at the Buell Center and working on the A&E project concurrently together as well. Initially, I became really interested in the not just the public-facing side of the large architecture and engineering conglomerates, but also their lobbying efforts. So one thing that I really did a, a deep dive into is looking at large companies such as ACOM and viewing their lobbying and corporate uh, spending for promoting these sort of huge government projects. Of course, seeing there is this coincidence that large companies have lobbying 
geared toward the military. And at the same year, there is a increase in budget, which they end up getting a uh, commission for to design a, a military headquarters or so on and so forth. So I became really interested in this more sinister look on architecture. I, I think at the same time, this was my first professional degree in architecture, and I was really enthralled with this idea of design and aesthetics, but on the other hand, very disillusioned by what's actually happening in the practice. Like Anais was saying, it's it's really hard to see in the real world what kind of architectural change is being done that helps people, especially in the wake of environmental disasters. I know coming into the, the world of GSAP, I had just moved out of my hometown in North Carolina, where my family had been adversely affected by Hurricane Florence. So it was really interesting to see that disconnect between the aesthetics of what we're doing in this world of academia and how anything can go versus the limitations and the actual power structures in the real world. I agree with Henderson in that the disconnection between academia and real world, it's evident, right? I think it definitely changed how I saw myself in the future because I did enter Colombia thinking of, I want to make resilient cities. I want to make Puerto Rico a better place, right? I want to do something with disasters and like have architecture that's going to be able to withstand whatever hurricane comes. That was my mindset when I entered GSAP. And then saying is one thing, but then learning out about all the nitty gritty, right? And what really happens just, I think, changed my mind a lot. And also, I guess, understanding that the design that we're doing wasn't, we, we really didn't see a design, I would say. So that, I guess that impacted me, not that we did not see a design, but it's more about all the processes that happen before and after the design process for that to get done. A lot of the world of architecture was entirely new to me going to GSAP in the first place. So my mind was sort of in the clouds thinking about the aesthetics of design and not at all thinking about the the cost or the, the bureaucratic impacts of architecture. So I think it totally and completely rechanged the thought process of all of the steps and boundaries you have to jump through in order to actually have anything constructed. And at the end of the day, you might create this project that could be benefiting Puerto Rico, could be benefiting the people in New Orleans. But if it's a, a company that's also working on oil rigs at the same time, it seems like this weird cognitive dissonance that it, I'm not even sure if I, if I want that company to be designing that project, right? And I, I think there's this huge disconnect between these Stark attacks that we learn about or these big name architects that are designing sustainably marketed projects, but what are they actually doing as far as resiliency for an entire city is a totally different question. So when doing this research, we were looking at more large scale infrastructure projects, such as alterations to the landscape of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, or thinking about how New York City can be retrofitted to withstand a climate disaster and sea level rise. But at the same time, I'm, I'm finding that the vast majority of these large scale federally funded initiatives are given to these huge, huge multi-billion dollar companies. And really it's not these small individual architecture firms that have the bandwidth to work on these projects. They don't have all the in-house components necessary to 
take on these roles or the experience that the federal government so often requires of them. I think it was really interesting to be disillusioned in that way. It definitely helps me better understand the things within the current system that would have to change to disrupt that power dynamic. But at the same time, it reinforces this idea in my mind that architects can't solve everything. Architects need to be much better and much better equipped to collaborate with local politicians, to go out and vote for people that will actually create the resources for architects to be hired for projects that they want to do. And I think it was very beneficial to, like Anais is saying, get our heads out of the studio and of course, think about design, of course, design beautiful things, but also understand the limitations of ourselves as designers. Yeah, I I definitely think that I became more critical about where I choose to work, became more real when I was in the career fair. Not saying that these won't keep us from working for them, but it definitely changed how I see anything. Now I make sure that I agree with their vision, with what they're doing and how they're responding to whatever project, how it affects the environment, if they're just put in a facade or not. I remember that we started talking about what is green. And I think that thinking about what green meant at that moment, that's what really sparked the conversation also in my studio because everyone wants to do green architecture, right? But what does that really mean? That was the main thing I feel like that um, kind of connected all the research that we were doing because we had that um, question in mind when thinking about architecture. What is green architecture? What does that even mean? Jumping off what Anais is saying, I think that one of the first steps I remember in, in Buell in conducting this research was simply going to these large companies' websites, reviewing their mission statement, looking at their page on addressing sustainability or confronting climate change. On the surface, most of the companies had these beautiful infographics. It looked very curated and geared toward what progressive architecture students would want to see. But on the opposite hand, if you actually did digging and looking at the corporate lobbying efforts, looking at large-scale federally funded infrastructure that might not be in line with someone's personal morals or political ideology, and actually seeing the company working on those projects or advancing projects that are in contrast to what they say, I think that's what students should know. They should do that research, get into those nitty gritty details. And if that's something you're willing to take on, if you're willing to try and change that system from the inside, I say go for it. But also, I think it's you know really important for students to, to do that research, especially for larger companies. Something that we definitely don't learn a lot about of in academia is numbers. It was just a different perspective on understanding the scale of a project. Maybe it's for the military, it will be millions of dollars. So just understanding, I think that was my biggest takeaway. The scale of projects in terms of money was a, a very rich experience and something you don't really get to learn in school. I agree. And I think not necessarily a statistic or one fact, but one takeaway from this research is the amount of gatekeeping within large-scale infrastructure projects and how 
few and far between small architecture firms are receiving these commissions for city revitalization projects. Maybe there's some companies like Big that will be working on uh, the Big U, but I'm sure a lot of that project is subcontracted out to one of these larger companies that actually has the wherewithal to work on the industrial and the engineering aspects of, of the projects. A little bit of a side note and tangent, but I've since moved from Morningside Heights down to the Lower East Side and East Village area. And currently the community is fighting back against the city's project to pave over the East River Park in a uh, an effort for sea level mitigation, cover over that park, which has been a staple within the community for over 80 years. With this research in the back of my mind, I've been wondering what large companies art play pushing this agenda and what companies will be given the commission to work on this project that's inherently going to impact thousands and thousands of, of people and, and change their daily lives. And it most likely won't be a, a local firm. It most likely won't be someone that knows the community. I'm, I'm really interested in community outreach in the world of architecture. And I think it's very, very hard to see these projects that adversely impact thousands of people and them being in a totally different state or city and not on the ground where it really matters. I just remember that when you said that about the Lower East Side, we also had this amazing opportunity of having that public forum where we were able to do some community outreach and really trying to give this fact to the community and see their response. I think that was very very productive in seeing the different perspectives of what we were doing and see that all the research we were doing really affected their daily lives and how they imagined a future where this could be solved. When I entered GSAP, I was really interested in environmental design. But since then, over the past two years, my architectural lens has shifted more towards equity and every aspect of, of the word, environmental equity, social equity, economic equity. And from a architecture and development standpoint, I think that there is a lot that needs to change within the landscape of, of architecture and especially real estate development in New York and creating a more equitable city, uh, creating more equitable infrastructure, especially in somewhere like New York, where the developers are unfortunately, most often worried about the bottom line. And in a, a post-COVID world, I think it's more important than ever to think about which communities are adversely affected by development, by luxury architecture and high-rise condominiums that are imposing themselves on low-income communities. And what can architects, developers, and practitioners do within the industry to change the mindset. I think that New York is a, a great place with a lot of local incentives, the tax abatement programs, HPDs, so many ways for architects and developers that really care to get involved and make a difference. But I, I think it takes a coalition of a new wave of designers and a new wave of practitioners to actually make that change outside of the world of policy. I guess I will also start like Henderson when I started, I thought I knew what I wanted. I knew I had something to do with resiliency, right, as I mentioned, and making better architecture, whatever that means, right? After doing this whole research, I definitely centered my concept on thinking about the community. Most of my projects, I think all of them, 
have begun by researching protests in the area. What are the complaints of the community there? And I think working on the bill really helped me understand in the more in the environmental aspect, I think, because even though I worked in Puerto Rico in the reconstruction, when I came here, I guess I thought I was alone in a certain way because I did not see this much involvement back home, at least in the practice. It was very disconnected. It's just like temporary fixes to whatever had to do with climate and the environment. And then seeing um, GSAB, which is one of the rewarding things that I've had while studying here, is meeting people like Henderson that are also interested in making positive change, changes related to the environment and climate change. I think that's something that reminded me, I guess, that I'm not alone in this in a way. And that also motivates myself, I guess. It motivates me to move forward in the practice, right? Looking looking for this and definitely thinking about community. I think that's the biggest takeaway for me in my future and my practice. I will hopefully make sure that I have the community input that I need before just starting any project. That's what I want as an architect. One thing I can end on is I think now with everything that's happened in the past world, living through COVID, being in my cohort and talking with people like Anais and other people in the program through the impacts of COVID, through the impacts of BLM, and just even yesterday going to a, a march for Black trans liberation and thinking about what's actually happening in the city and thinking about what role can practitioners take? Where can they choose to listen? And how can they let others' voices be heard? I think, especially for me as a, a, a white cis male, how do I use my skills as a practitioner, as a future architect and possibly developer to elevate the voices of those who have been marginalized in a way that is productive, in a way that's effective, and, and also a way that's socially sensitive? I completely agree because the architects don't really have much say in some projects, but we need to be strategic and smart about how we can amplify the voices of those that need us through our projects. <laughs>